The reading is taken from the second book of Samuel, chapter 7, verses 8 to 16, which is on page 310 in the Church Bibles. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will enjoy, endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. This is the word of the Lord. Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we uh, go through Advent, Father, we, uh, we anticipate celebrating the birthday of Jesus, and we look forward as well to Jesus' second coming. And so, Father, please, would you teach us now as we prepare, uh, teach us as we come to your word, help us to be ready to listen, to learn, and to submit to your word. Amen. Well, as we go through Advent, we are starting a series, actually not in 2 Samuel, although you'll see why we had that passage read in a few minutes. But we're actually starting a series going through Matthew's Gospel. So you might just want to turn there with me to page 965. The beginning of Matthew's Gospel. Tim Neal started this for us last week, starting on the genealogy right at the start of Matthew's Gospel. And you might have thought that I was incredibly mean, giving him that 
passage to preach from, I would just, in my defense, I just want to say, I did say to him, you don't have to preach on this. If you'd rather preach on a different passage, you can. And he said, I've never preached on that one, so I will go for it. So it's not my fault, all right? So why are we looking at this? So we're looking at the beginning chapters of Matthew's Gospel, and actually this isn't, he didn't, he said it would take us six months. It's actually not quite going to take us that long, because we're only going through the first few chapters of Matthew, and we're going to go on beyond Christmas to see the opening chapters of Matthew. It's going to take us up to the beginning of Lent, when we're going to start a series in Romans, but more about that in due course. See, as we begin to prepare for celebrating the birth of Jesus, I thought it would be good for us to start one of the accounts of Jesus' life. You've got four of them, haven't you? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I thought it'd be good for us to see how does one of them present Jesus to us? How does Matthew begin? What does he say at the beginning? When, when he's going to introduce Jesus, what does he do? And what we find in the book of Matthew is he begins with a long list of names. He begins with a genealogy of Jesus that takes us right back, actually, to the early chapters of the Bible, to Genesis chapter 12. You're going back 2,000 years. You may know your family history, your family tree. You may be able to go back generations. I doubt you can go back 2,000 years. But that's what Matthew does. He says, let me take you back through the Old Testament and let me show you how Jesus, the birth of Jesus, connects to all that has gone before. Isn't that significant? Don't you think that's significant? As you come to the first of the Gospels that we have here, first thing you read is, let me take you back to the Old Testament and how it fits with that. Matthew is telling us, you're not going to understand Jesus properly, fully, until you see him in the light of all that has gone before, that he connects to all that has happened before. So you're not going to understand Jesus unless you know the Old Testament, not fully understand him. But also you're not going to understand the Old Testament until you see that it points us to Jesus. It is both ways round. There is one page, therefore, in your Bible that you can legitimately rip out. We've said this before. Uh, it is that page just to the left of where you are at the moment, that New Testament page. That page is uninspired and uninspiring. You could if you want, don't, but you could if you wanted rip that page out. Because that suggests that there is a big division in the Bible between the Old and the New Testament. But there isn't. Uh, it's odd, in fact, to have that there. And then the first thing that you get in Matthew's Gospel is to say this connects back to all that has gone before. No, Matthew doesn't start his gospel, now let's start something new. He starts with the Old Testament. And if you look at this genealogy on uh, page 965, um, you see that actually Matthew gives us an abbreviated version right at the beginning and right at the end of the genealogy. So if you look, you've got all those names there, and he gives you an abbreviated version in verse 1. He says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, 
the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then if you go to the end of the genealogy, verse 17, he says, Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David uh, to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Now, he gives you, therefore, an abbreviated version even of the genealogy. And he says, look, there are two key names there, aren't there? What are the two key names that you spotted? Well, the two key names are Abraham and David. Those are the two key names. And they crop up in the genealogy in key places, don't they? Abraham's right at the start. So Matthew starts with Abraham. And we saw Abraham last week, the promises to Abraham, the promises of uh, a people, a place, and blessing, Those promises to Abraham, they're key promises. And then you go through the genealogy, you get to verse 6. There's another key moment there where King David is mentioned. And we're going to focus today on King David and on the list of kings that follows David. So we ought to have the passage read that I'm preaching on. So here we go. Here's a list of names. They are kings of Israel. So we're going to start in verse 6. And verse 6 begins, And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Ammon. Ammon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. So that is the bit that we're focusing in on. It is a list of kings. Now, just before we get into the points that are on the back of your sheet, just one thing to say before we get into that, which is that um, this is where Luke and Matthew's genealogies diverge. Um, So Luke also has a genealogy of Jesus uh, stretching back. Luke has one in his gospel. Matthew has this one in his. But they are not identical. And that may throw some people that you go, well, how can you have two different genealogies of Jesus? Well, there are several possible explanations for this. I think the best explanation is that actually what Matthew is doing is giving us not the biological line back uh, from Jesus through Joseph. He's not giving the biological line back. I think what he's giving us actually is the line of succession from King David, the line of succession of the kingship. So that's why it's different. I think Luke is giving us the biological genealogy. Matthew is giving us the kingship line, the line of succession, which is why you go David to Solomon and so on. I think that's probably the best explanation uh, for why there is that difference. There certainly could be other reasons why you might have two genuine different genealogies for Jesus, but that's the best that I, I think that there is. So what we need to ask now is, why is it significant? Matthew emphasizes it several times. Why is it significant that Jesus is in the line of David? Why is it important that he is a son of David? And for that, we need to go back to the promises that God made to David. And these are promises that are important, not just for Jesus and his family, not just for Israelites, but these are important for us too. And this is where we come to our first point, the promise of an eternal kingship. 
So this part of the genealogy begins with David. It is obviously key. And so we need to go back to those promises to David. That's why we had the passage read in 2 Samuel 7. So would you turn back to that, page 310. If you want to put your notice, no, you need to follow the points, don't you? If you want to put something in the beginning of Matthew's gospel, you can. Um, But 2 Samuel chapter 7, page 310. So page 310, and we see here in this passage, King David has had a brainwave, he's had a bright idea. You see, he wants to build a temple for the Lord. At this stage, they were using the tabernacle to worship the Lord, that is a tent. They'd used this because they'd been a nomadic people traveling around from place to place. So to worship the Lord, they needed a tent that they could travel around with them. But now they were established in the land, it felt wrong to David that the Lord just had a tent when he had a palace. So he says, his bright idea is, I will build a temple for the Lord. I will build a house for the Lord. And the Lord God comes back to David with these staggering promises. Promises that blew uh, David's mind. That that led him to praise God in such a dramatic way that if you kept reading the chapter you would see. And we're going to focus in on verses 11 11 to 16. So have a look in that passage. Notice verse 11, halfway through the verse there. That the Lord says, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. In other words, David, you've said you're going to build my house, but I'm going to build your house. You're not actually going to build my temple. You're not going to build my house. I'm going to build a house for you, David, is what the Lord says. By which he means David's kingdom. And the Lord says, David, nothing is going to stop your kingship. Nothing is going to stop it. Nothing is going to get in the way of it. Dale Ralph Davis in his book on uh, this passage in 2 Samuel 7 picks out three things that cannot destroy King David's kingship. The first thing he says is, death cannot annul it. So verse 12, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. In other words, David, even when you die, your kingship will carry on. Your son will carry it on. Your kingdom will continue through your children. Death cannot annul it. Sin cannot destroy it. Verses 14 and 15. I will be his father and he shall be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. God is saying sin, wrongdoing, will not stop this kingship from carrying on. Even if David's descendants mess up in a big way, rebel in a big way, God's saying the line will continue, the kingship will carry on. 
And in David's line, as you go on, you see there are some really big failures, really big errors that people make, rebellion that people do. And yet, you can still trace the family line, the kingship. That's why Matthew is so important, saying this genealogy. You can still trace it through, even when kings make a right mess of it. You can still follow the family line. Again, Dale Ralph Davis says, developing the house analogy, sin can bring disaster on any current residents of the house, but cannot demolish the house. In other words, an individual king may make a mess of it, may be taken away from the kingship, but you can't demolish the house. The line will continue. And it's so significant that God says it won't be like Saul. Because King Saul, who was David's predecessor, sinned. And God said, I'm taking my spirit away from him. And the, fa- and the kingship won't continue in his line. But not so with you, David. Your kingship will, be, uh, will carry on. Death cannot annul it. Sin cannot destroy it. Time will not exhaust it. Verse 13, so back a little bit. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, you need to put yourself in David's position and you need to realise he has never heard this before. You, if... If you've read your Bible before, if you know uh, things about Christianity, you'll kind of go, oh yeah, David's kingship goes forever. David hasn't heard this yet. He doesn't know anything about this. Imagine how this hits his ears. That he hears here, I will establish the throne of his kingdom, that's your son's kingdom, forever. It will never come to an end. It will never run out. It will never wear out or wind down. There will never come a day when his kingdom will end. Can you see how David is just blown away? I mean, all he said was, I'm going to build you a house. And God says, no, I'm building you a house. Your kingdom will never end. And so go back to Matthew, please. Back to Matthew, chapter 1, page uh, wherever we were, 965. Okay, that's the promise to David. David, you will have an eternal kingship. Death can't annul it, sin can't destroy it, time won't exhaust it, your kingdom, your kingship will go on. That's David, verse 6. You go to Solomon, his son. And you keep going through Rehoboam, Abijah, Asa, Jehoram. And what you find as you go through the Old Testament, through these various kings, is that you then start getting more prophets coming. And the prophets develop this promise. You get more revealed about the promise of this kingship. And what you find is 
that the kingship focuses in not so much on just a continual line of succession of king after king after king but it actually becomes focused in on one king a particular king seems to be more in view and you get to Uzziah King Uzziah and at this point a prophet comes along by the name of Isaiah and he starts prophesying and we're told at the beginning of his book he prophesies in the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah and as he prophesies he talks about a king in the line of David who will come but this king is far greater than David ever was an amazing king and to see his prophecy we're going to turn to Isaiah chapter 9 verses 6 to 7 so would you turn back to 694 Isaiah chapter 9 and this if you've been to carol services before that kind of thing where you've had the traditional readings you'll recognize this so Isaiah chapter 9 verses 6 and 7 listen to what this is saying about this king for to us a child is born to us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called wonderful counselor mighty God everlasting father prince of peace of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this this king is one who will sit on David's throne in other words he's coming from David's line and he is unlike any other do you see what, what marks out his kingdom what does it look like what kind of kingdom is it it is great it will be marked by peace verse 7 also in verse 7 later on it will be marked by justice and righteousness it will be the perfect kingdom and he will reign for eternity it will never end from that time on and forever it says and did you notice the incredible titles in verse 6 he's going to be called wonderful counselor mighty God everlasting father and prince of peace now do you notice in there that you've got a divine title this king who is to come in the line of David is going to be mighty God this is a divine king he's going to be staggering isn't he this king just turn over one page to Isaiah 11 another uh, uh, prophecy often read out at Christmas 
Isaiah 11, a shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. Jesse is David's father. So in the line of David, this shoot will come, this person will come. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash round his waist. Again, the ideal king, powerful and just. And dealing properly with the wicked. And in Isaiah 11, we see his kingship won't be confined to Israel. Just cast your eyes to verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. See, and as you go through the prophets, you see he isn't just king of Israel, of this one nation, but he's going to have a reign throughout the world. And so as you go through the prophets, you see this greater revealing of this kingship, this king who will come. He is the ideal divine king in the line of David. Just very occasionally, maybe you read a book or watch a TV program or a film or a theatre production or even have a meal at a restaurant where it just gets better and better. That, every, that it begins well and then every subsequent twist in the plot or every subsequent course in the meal just gets better and better and better and it's really exciting. It's great, isn't it, when that happens? As you read through the Bible, as you read of this promise of, this, of the kingship of David, it starts well. I mean, it's pretty good in 2 Samuel 7, isn't it? And then it just gets better and better as it focuses in on this one king to come, this one who will be a son of David. Back to Matthew. Would you go back to Matthew with me? Nine six five. I've learnt the page number. There you go. We've got this promise, okay, of this king who will come, this perfect king who will bring peace and righteousness and justice. He'll be great. But it clearly wasn't Uzziah, verse 9, or Jotham, or Ahaz. It wasn't Hezekiah. It wasn't Manasseh. It wasn't Ammon. And then verse 11, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile. And at the time of the exile, the people of Israel are taken to Babylon. And the kings of Israel stop being kings because they've been taken over by the Babylonians. And yet, you can keep tracing the kingly line as you go through, and as you go through the post-exile names on the list. Jeconiah, Shealtiel. And you should be thinking, could the promise still happen? Could the one, the son of David, come? And there was expectation in the time of Jesus that God's promise to David still stood. 
that one day God would raise up a son of David. And so we come to our last point. Jesus, the son of David. I hope you see the significance there, that Jesus is the son of David. Matthew is telling us that the long wait for, the, for God's promise is over. The fulfilment is here. And particularly in Matthew's Gospel, this is raised over and over again as you go through the Gospel. Those in need often cry out to Jesus. Uh, blind men, when they're calling to Jesus for help, they say, have mercy on us, son of David. And when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, the crowds shout, Hosanna to thee, son of David. You can imagine the expectation, the excitement. Here is the king. And yet, as we know, Jesus doesn't really do what the people are expecting. He talks a lot about a kingdom, but it's the kingdom of heaven, not the kingdom of Israel. And when he rides into Jerusalem, he doesn't go to the palace and kick out the Romans and take his throne there. No, he goes to the temple and turns over the tables and then leaves the city. He doesn't bring in a return to the kingdom of Israel like it was in David's time. In fact, he ends up nailed to a cross outside Jerusalem and above his head is the charge, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Was it a failure? And yet, as we read through the Gospels, we see this was always Jesus' purpose. When he was born on earth, he came not to live in luxury as David did in a palace, but to die. Why? Revelation 1, verses 5 and 6, help us. The verse is going to be on the screen. This is what John says in praise of Jesus in Revelation. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. That verse tells us that when Jesus died, he freed people from their sin and made us to be a kingdom. When he died on that cross, he was establishing his kingdom. We would expect that he would establish it through overthrowing the Romans, but no, Jesus doesn't establish his kingdom through violence, through guns, through tanks and missiles, not through killing others, but through his own death on the cross. That was the son of David establishing his kingdom. And now all who will come to Jesus, who come knowing they need their sins forgiven, however bad they've been, 
however much we've rebelled against God, we can come to Jesus. Maybe we've ignored God, or maybe we've tried to break every command he gave. If we will just come to Jesus for forgiveness, his death will set you free from your sin, so you too can come into his kingdom and serve God and live lives of joyful service to this king, the son of David. And one day, we still wait in expectation, don't we? Jesus will come back and bring to fulfillment his kingdom, which will be as glorious as the prophets foretold. So now is the time to respond to him, to enter his kingdom, to bow before the king and to live for him. Matthew tells us Jesus is the son of David, the divine king of an eternal kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for Jesus, the son of David. Thank you that he fulfills all those prophecies, that he is that king and that he came to die to establish his kingdom and that even we, sinners though we are, can come into his kingdom through his death. Help us, Father, to be in awe of Jesus, to bow before him and to live our lives for him. Amen.